brought to you by Penguin. My granddad went in, got his war record, burned it, typed up a new one completely fresh, and within a year was a regimental sergeant major. <laughs> Love that. Hello and welcome to the award-winning Penguin podcast, where leading authors and artists explore their creativity by selecting a handful of objects that have inspired their work. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and it will be of no surprise to you that I'm speaking to you from my home during these challenging times, so do forgive any background noises or glitches in sound quality. Ah, it is what it is. My guest today is a television presenter, producer, director and novelist. He's the creator and co-presenter of the BBC One television quiz show Pointless. And you may recognise him as the, um, well, you know, chap that appears on plenty of TV panel shows such as Eight of Ten Cats and Would I Lie to You. His novel, The Thursday Murder Club, meets four friends in their 70s and 80s who live in a retirement village and become amateur detectives. Of course, I'm talking about none other than Richard Osman. Hello, Richard. Hi, Nahal. How are you? Good. It's really, really good to speak to you. Lovely to speak to you. Now, the thing that I wanted to ask you was, because mm. you seem like this extraordinary polymath, <laughs> is what are the things that you are terrible at? I'm not a polymath at all. I think a polymath is that sort of, um, I think middle people who are brought up middle class become polymaths, and I wasn't brought up middle class. So I think I, I strive to do the small amount of things I do as well as possible. So all I can do really is produce telly, present telly and write. It's all sort of trying to be good with words and, you know, trying to appeal to a big mainstream audience. That tends to be the only thing I can do. I couldn't, I can't sort of fix your boiler. I couldn't, you know, if there's something wrong with your car, you have to take it to Mr. Clutch, not me. I can't do anything pretty much. And so I really, really focus on the things that I can do and try and get a maximum from them that I can. But you seem to be someone who has a thirst for knowledge. You have a, and you're obviously incredibly inquisitive about the world. Yeah, I'm inquisitive about human nature. You know, I'm interested in the, why the world is the way it is. I'm interested in why people behave the way they do. I'm interested in why we have the politics that we have, and I'm fascinated by that on a micro scale as well. I'm fascinated by human interactions with each other, and you know that all ties into making big television shows and and and, and writing novels. It's all it's all about sort of seeing what it is that people respond to and why and what they care about and why and you know and, and who we are as human beings so yeah I'm fascinated in other humans I'm not I'm not particularly fascinated in machines or anything like that so then writing a novel yeah did this seem a completely natural extension of everything you were doing or was this something that genuinely took you out of your comfort zone well, listen, I've always written, so I've always been a writer. I wrote for magazines when I was younger and, uh, you know, I've written for TV and stuff like that. So I've always written and I love to write. But a novel did seem like too difficult for me. I'm a huge admirer of novels and, you know, I read a lot and, you know, I've always thought well, that seems impossible. Uh, and I got to the stage where I thought, well, you, you know what, you love to write, you you like to do something a bit longer form. So I just gave myself a month just to sit and write for, you know, just do a thousand words a day. And, you know, I got to sort of 20,000 odd words and I sort of thought, well, maybe, maybe, maybe like everything that's worth doing in life, it is just day by day. And when you work that out, I just sort of thought, well, I might as well continue because I loved doing it. And obviously I gave up a few times like everyone does. And every time I read a good novel, I thought, well, what's the point of me continuing with this? And I sort of, I was reading the novel and thinking, this doesn't sound like anyone else's novel. And for a while that really threw me. And then I thought, oh, maybe that's, maybe that's a good thing. 
when confidence levels are low, mm. what brings them back up again? Well, that's the interesting thing. Nothing is the truth because confidence is, is, is a trick. It doesn't really exist. Uh, hard work is the only thing. Yeah. And so I think you have to, you know, that's why most people give up on books because it's very hard. It's very hard to ignore that voice. And you sort of have to, I think, you know, and obviously in, in earlier times in my life, I haven't ignored that voice. But, you know, this time I just thought, you know what? Shut up. Confidence, overconfidence, underconfidence, you know, they're not, um, they're not real. You know, what's real is sitting down and, you know, typing words into a page. And sometimes they're bad and sometimes they're good. But confidence is, is, is not something I ever really um, have much truck with. When did you work that out? Well, it's like, it's like anything. Confidence is part of ego. And ego is the thing that you, that, that you kind of jettison, isn't it, as you get a little bit older and you have to jettison, you know. Because, <laughs> Not working in TV, surely. <laughs> well, quite, I mean, <laughs> interesting, that probably sped up my uh, knowledge of it. But, you know, ego is just PR. You know, ego is just spin, but inside your head. And, you know, I, I ignore spin and PR on Twitter, so I, I choose to ignore it inside my own head as well. And is this something that you worked out on your own or is this something that you had help with to work out? I've had therapy for years in a, in a sort of very low-key, once-a-month type way and I find it very, very useful. Only because I came from a certain background, a slightly more working-class background, I find myself in a very middle-class background, I find myself in a industry which, you know, it's I, I think there's there's interesting challenges. So, yeah, I've, I've, I've always gone and spoken to, um, in my case, a very wise gentleman, but also just in observing your own life and observing the world around you and seeing where confidence and overconfidence and nervousness and imposter syndrome, seeing where that gets us as a world. And, you know, it doesn't get us very far, does it? So I, I, I don't see why it would get me very far inside my own head either. Why these sleuths? Why this age group? Well, I, I went to a genuine retirement village. So these four sleuths, uh, that's a funny word, isn't it? Uh, these four sleuths um, live in a retirement village. And I went to a genuine retirement village and I found it very moving. Firstly, I found it very beautiful. It's a really lovely place out in the English countryside. And, I, and, and I, the writer in me thought this would be an amazing place for a murder. So I definitely thought that. But it was the people, really. It was these people. Everyone's in their 70s. And, you know, we're told to think a certain thing about people in their 70s. But... They were having such a laugh, you know, they're drinking, gossiping, there's loads of politics, you know, there's extraordinary people from loads of different backgrounds all mixing together. And I thought, well, this is an interesting gang of people. And I thought, well, if there was a murder here, then these people would solve it, that's for sure. And that's where the idea came from, really. Look, um, one of the, the kind of core things of the Penguin podcast is objects mm. that you, the creative individual, bring to us. Now, I know the Tinder dating app, can't wait to find out why that's here uh, today, a photograph <laughs> of your granddad in his police uniform yeah. is another one. But let's start with the first one, which is a candle. Now, tell me, why is a candle of importance to you? Marion Key said that whenever she sits down to write, she just lights a candle, you know, and therefore she's gone from the state of I am not writing to the state of I am writing, you know, and that psychologically is really, really important because it's saying just it's exactly like going to the gym. It's like walking through the door of the gym just saying, OK, I'm going to be in the gym for an hour. And so I read that and um, I did the same thing. So I started buying candles and I um, messaged Marion on Twitter, just said, oh, just so you know, I'm started lighting candles because you said and I find it really really useful and two days later she sent me a candle through the post which I thought was firstly shows you what lovely people writers are 
Um, mm, shows you in particular what a lovely person <laughs> Marion yes. Keyes is, which I know is not news to anybody. But it's symbolic of that thing which is writing as a job and a really hard job. I mean, however much we like to think of it as art, and it is, you know, you obviously your stuff comes out of your brain, which you didn't expect, but it's also graft. And it is also, it's also something where you really, really have to be in control of the voice in your head that tells you not to do it. And just the little thing, I always make myself a cup of herbal tea, light a candle, and there we go. Then I'm in for two hours, which is how long I, I, I write for. You say in the acknowledgements, Richard, that you literally told no one you were writing this book. Mm. And I think of the obvious question is, is why? Because again, yeah. that perhaps points to... I don't know, a lack of confidence or, or, no. were you that, or you're a doer, so you'd rather not talk about doing stuff, you just do it. Yeah, I think the opposite. I think that um, I think sometimes telling people that you're writing a book is sort of a surrogate for actually writing a book. Yeah. You know, I think that it's, it's to be in the position now where a book has been written is, I can't begin to tell you, it's the greatest joy of my life. And I'm so happy about it. And I, I really understand why. It has brought so many people so much joy over the years to, to to be in this state. But I do think, in the same way that when you're a kid and you you know you're in a band, and before you write any songs, you tell you tell people the name of your band and you write posters for your band and stuff like that. That's natural. And saying, "Oh, I'm writing a novel," is sort of. I mean, I don't know who you're telling, you know, because people will know when you've written a novel because <laughs> because there'll be a novel. You know, and you won't have to tell people. You'll just show that. And so that was my thinking. And listen, tempered with the idea that nobody wants a television presenter to write a novel. So I wanted to do it on my own terms. I wanted to finish the whole thing and just look someone who I trusted in the eyes and just said, well, look, is this a book, do you think? Or is this a guy off the telly wants to write about some old people and and there's not much to it? How much snobbery have you encountered I would say a lot, a lot. My first ever job I got in telly, first ever one, and this was uh, indicative of what was to come, was it was sort of a reverse snobbery, but I knew I know where it comes from. It comes from the same place. I was asked it was I was to be a researcher on a computer games program on Sky in the very early days of Sky, and the woman who interviewed me, I just come from Cambridge, and she said, um, "How on earth?" Can someone who's just come from Cambridge make a television program for someone on a housing estate in Basildon? Mm. Uh, and I was fortunately I was able to say, well, I grew up on a housing estate five miles from Basildon, so I think I'll be all right. Do you think that people assume that you are from a privileged background? Yeah, yeah, because I'm from the south, you know. So I get that. And my mum made us uh, very careful about the way we spoke. But yeah, of course they do. And that's and also, by the way, I really I am from a privileged background now. I mean, there's absolutely no getting um, around yeah. that. And my kids, boy, they're really they're really from a privileged <laughs> background. My God, and you know what? Great, but you know, a I'm not, and and so you know that's why I'm, I, I think I'm able to write what I write and 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 produce what I produce because I, I sort of know a thing or two about Britain. So I'm not posh, but it's uh, it's a. Everything in Britain is class. I mean, and it's yes. never spoken about properly. It just isn't, and I get it. And at the moment, gender and race are much, much, much more important because there's incredibly um, urgent work we need to do. But even behind gender and race, class is everywhere. Absolutely. And I feel like I'm a, I'm outside of the classes because I moved from one to another and, and 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 don't belong in either. And so I'm able to sort of step back and just go. 
listen, I know some lovely people who went to public school in Cambridge and really good people, smart people, people who would have achieved everywhere they were in the world, anywhere they were. But I know a lot of mediocre people and they have achieved more than the people that I went to school with. And you know what? You can quote statistics at me. You can say, oh, no, people didn't try hard. You can say whatever you like. I've seen it. I know it. I know it for a fact. I know that the dice are loaded. And now I find myself in a position with a platform where I can actually say it and hopefully do something about it. But it's um, it's the first self-evident truth to me is there's not anything approaching a quality of opportunity in this country. And to still have to say that seems absurd to me. Let's talk about generations and previous generation. Um, mm. And this is a photograph. This is your second object, Richard. Tell us about this photograph. So it's a photograph of my grandfather, Thomas, but really, uh, well, really Thomas, but actually Fred, like everyone from his generation. <laughs> everyone from his generation doesn't use their real name. If you talk to anyone about their grandparents, they go, well, he wasn't really called George. Uh, he was called Edward. But uh, yeah, so he was a police officer for years and years and years. He started off, funnily enough, he's a working-class boy from the streets of Brighton, one of ten brothers, and left home to join the army when he was 14. Uh, he was a very, very bright man. And he was always in trouble, always fighting, because, you know, he had there's no opportunities for him. And, you know, he could see the things that he wanted to do, and he wasn't able to. So, yeah, he was always in trouble, he had a terrible record. And just before the war started, when they were having to really ramp up recruitment, they were moving all the records, all the war records being moved from one place to another. And his um, officer said to him, Fred, look, we're going to move all of these um, records. Yours is in there, by the way. And I should tell you, it's a disgrace. You know that already. He said, look, I'm going to nip outside for 10 minutes and have a cigarette. He said, uh, you do whatever you need to do. So he went outside. My granddad went in, got his war record, burned it typed up a new one completely fresh and within a year was a regimental sergeant major and so you know that was the kind of <laughs> that was the beginning of his uh, his ascent but of course you know he goes to war is a regimental sergeant major was a leader of men you know went through a, a awful time like everyone in that generation did comes back after the war and he discovers he's still a working class boy from brighton what are you going to do there's still no opportunity no you know nothing's opened up for him because of what he's done and I think that stayed with him forever and ever and ever, as it would, and it stayed with me as well. But then he did eventually, after a few years, join the police and worked his way up in the police. He always said that it was the only um, direct order he turned down is when they tried to get him to police the minor strike. And this was the 70s minor strike, not the 80s one. And he said, I'm not going to do it. He said that the, the living of those men is their business, not my business, so I won't do it. And so you can imagine in the in the, in the police force of the 1970s was not the most left-wing organisation you're ever going to come across. But, you know, I've included the picture of him here because in the, the book is about people who are tough but kind, I think, the people who are capable of great kindness, but also if they're backed into a corner, will fight. And that idea of good people but who are also combative I think is quite important and think there's, 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 there's probably a shortage of them. And, you know, that kind of is a tribute to him, really, is people who know what the right thing to do is and are prepared to really put themselves out there and, you know, roll their sleeves up and do the dirty work and, and get it done, you know, I think comes, uh, comes directly from him and from many, many, many men and women of his generation as well. And so were you brought up with stories in the first person, from him himself, or was this something that you yeah, inherited? No, no, war stories, police stories, Amazing. all sorts of things. He always said his big, greatest advice to me, which I've actually taken, this is how middle class I am now. I use this in a, in a business sense now, right? So his advice was, 
said the one thing I learned in the police was if you're ever called to a fight in a pub, make sure you're second through the door. Uh, and it's such a it's such great advice for life. He said, look, the first person through the door gets gets um, gets the crap beaten out of them. The second one goes in, can swing a punch, and is the hero. And I felt creatively over the years and with business decisions. Honestly, the first mover usually they lose their money, and the second one gets to sweep everything up, and you know is is, is seen as the hero. He was always full of advice like that. He would always, if ever you have a car, he said, if you're ever in an accident or anything like that in a car, never, ever, ever apologise. He said, even if it's your fault, just because it comes up in court, he said, just don't apologise. Be thoughtful, be, you know, make sure everyone's okay. Just don't say sorry, because the second they've got sorry written down on their on their bit of paper, that's it, you're done for. So he was, he was always full of little ways of getting away with stuff. Object number three, and mm. quite frankly, I've been waiting for this one. Okay. The dating app. Tinder. Yes. Okay. Well, so in the book, the book is about four people in their 70s. Yeah. And it's set in this retirement community and all of this. And I just sort of, you know, I, the last thing I wanted was for people to think, oh, it's like Midsummer Murders. It's so cosy. It's yeah. this. It's, oh, these poor old people. And isn't it sweet that they're solving crimes? And you think that's <laughs> really the last book I wanted to write. I wanted to write about four super, super smart, resilient people who were been around death and been around grief and so had lots of things to draw on i wanted it to be very real and so right the way through the book i try and throw the real world at them as much as i can and tinder i'm choosing as as, as a sort of reflection of that because one of the things one there's a young cop and she's on tinder and so they sort of learn as much as they can about it and joyce who's our narrator sort of looks through it and is talking about how bleak it might be and talks you know makes her think about how she met her husband and if she'd had more choice, would they have ended up? And she, her view is with her husband. She, she thinks, if I'd had more choice, I still would have ended up with him. He said, but I suspect if he'd had more choice, he wouldn't have ended up with me. And she goes, I don't want to think about that anymore. But through the medium of Tinder, I'm just making sure that the modern world encroaches on them. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot, there's drug dealers in the book and there's, you know, there's, there's, there's a vegan this, cafe. There's a vegan cafe. That, that's a, to be fair, if you're in your 70s, 80s, that is a new concept for you, isn't it? Well, it's exactly that. But also she doesn't, and funny if it reminds me of my mama a, a, a little bit, because she will be like 10 years after there's vegan cafes, my mama would go, well, there's a vegan cafe. She said, I'm going to go along and try it because, and that generation do, you know, they kind of love, new, you know, they, obviously they love the things they have, but they love new things. And sometimes if you write a book, you would say, oh no, they're just going to have, you know, they, they're just, I mean, my, listen, my people do watch Morse and eat Battenberg. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. But also, you know, they want to see the new stuff and they want to be taught about the new stuff. But, you know, it's lovely to be able to explore just to have that dialogue between the generations, which I think we sort of lost. I think we've fallen a little bit too far back on this kind of, oh, you know, older people are conservative and have done this and they don't understand. And of course they do. It's idiotic to say that, you know, people in their 70s and 80s who are such allies for every movement of progress there is. But yeah, I just wanted it to be noted that in your 70s, the new world is still coming at you. And there is a generation of people who are still excited and interested in the fact that Tinder exists and want to see how it works and want to have a play with it. And, you know, because because why wouldn't you? One of the things uh, I fear, which oh, yeah. uh, above all other things, is, is cynicism. Yeah. Creeping up on me as I get older. And mm. I'm conscious to not ever allow that to happen. Yeah. What are, what are your fears well, cynicism would definitely be a fear. Giving up would be 
a fear. And, you know, my view with all of these things is show, don't tell. However, I might wake up being cynical, but I'd rather write a book that wasn't cynical because sometimes I need to read things that aren't cynical to remind myself not to be. I think they need to be taking people across one by one to the side of good. That's that's always been my uh, that's always been my view. And cynicism is so easy at the moment because the world isn't is quite a scary place. And it's easy to give up. And like writing a book, you've just got to go day by day and not give up. And you've got to do the right thing and and live the right way and act the right way. But certainly with social media, I think people need sometimes. And I'm not talking, by the way, about younger people or people you know in who, who are at the absolute coalface of these issues. You, you fight and shout and do absolutely everything you need. But people like me, people in my position, need to be a bit smarter about how we can help, you know, and not need and not be suckered into the culture war and not sort of give ammunition to our opponents. Let's uh, dip into the audio book ah. right now to Joyce, where we first meet her. Uh, the Thursday Murder Club. I was at lunch, this is two or three months ago, and it must have been a Monday because it was shepherd's pie. Elizabeth said she could see that I was eating but wanted to ask me a question about knife wounds if it wasn't inconvenient. I said, not at all, of course, please, or words to that effect. I won't always remember everything exactly. I might as well tell you that now. So... She opened a manila folder and I saw some typed sheets and the edges of what looked like old photographs. Then she was straight into it. Elizabeth asked me to imagine that a girl had been stabbed with a knife. I asked what sort of knife she had been stabbed with and Elizabeth said, probably just a normal kitchen knife. John Lewis. She didn't say that, but that was what I pictured. Then she asked me to imagine this girl had been stabbed three or four times just under the breastbone. In and out, in and out, very nasty, but without severing an artery. She was fairly quiet about the whole thing because people were eating and she does have some boundaries. That was the Thursday Murder Club written by my guest Richard Osman and read there by Leslie Manville. It is available to buy and download now. There's a link in the programme notes of this very episode. And whilst we're here, do remember to subscribe, comment and share this podcast, this award-winning podcast. And you can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. Did you have the audio book in mind when writing this as someone who works in sound and vision? No, I I, I don't think I particularly did. I think I just had the book in mind. And then, you know, obviously afterwards, all, all that other exciting stuff comes along. I think I definitely wrote it in, in, in a way that was informed by my work on telly, not consciously in any way, but just that thing of don't bore them, don't bore them, don't bore them. In a crime book, we know we're, work, we're working towards um, finding out what happened, how it happened, who did it and so on. But on the way, the beauty of crime fiction and why it's such a brilliant genre and why just some of the greatest books of all time are in that genre, is you can do what you want on the way. And you can have such a laugh on the way. And that's the joy for me of, of, of writing this. I was all the way through, I was thinking, come on, keep keep entertaining, keep entertaining them. You know, keep, every scene's got to move the story on. Like you can't, there's, there's no room for a scene that's just in there for entertainment. So everything's got to move the story on. But equally, it's just got to be entertaining and you've got to enjoy it. Talking of things that you consume... From a kind of creative perspective, what are the books that have left a lasting impression on you? It's interesting. And, and uh, having started writing, you sort of read differently and probably read a bit less, which um, is 
difficult and I'm trying to um, <laughs> deal with it at the moment. But I would think things like all, all the way through writing the book, I was listening to all the um, Patricia Highsmith Ripley novels, which I think are just extraordinary pieces of work and written beautifully simply, written with pace, written with no sentimentality, but written with a sort of keen understanding of human nature, although she comes from a very dark angle on that. So I love her stuff. And then, you know, I take someone like Muriel Spark, who I think does the same thing as Patricia Highsmith, but comes from a sort of view of human nature, which is more akin to mine, probably, and is very witty and plays with humour a lot, but it can make you cry on the turn of a sixpence. Remember when we used to be able to fly? Yeah, uh, if ever I was that. flying somewhere, I'd always buy John Grisham because I don't really like flying. And I know that if I buy a John Grisham, it's going to keep me entertained for the whole journey, right? Because so, he just, just, you can't help turn the pages. And I bought a John Grisham, and it was like an airport edition of something that must have been a hardback because I hadn't seen it. So I thought, oh, great, a new John Grisham. And so I was on like an eight hour flight going to New York or something. So, um, and I was about two pages in, I thought, this is a bit weird. And then I realised, and it didn't say it anywhere on the cover, it was his book for kids. He looked like a lawyer hero, Theodore Boone, for children. And I got this eight-hour flight with a with this book. I mean, God bless him, I'm sure it's terrific, but it's not for me. Absolutely gutted about that. Because, you know, I love, uh, I love a Grisham. Your final object now, and um, you do have a bottle of red, red wine. Uh, and this is only, again, because this sort of represents the joy of and the friendship of these four characters. Because, you know, they start drinking at 11.30 and God bless them. Who wouldn't? Because it's like being at uni, being in this retirement village, but the, no one's got any work to do. So, you know, they get up early, they start drinking early, they have their lunch early, they go to bed early. And, you know, I love that. And I love the companionship of it. And I love just the idea that in our 70s, we're just going to be meeting new mates and, you know, ringing them up and saying, do you want to go to the bar for a drink? This place has got a bar, it's got a restaurant, it's got some, you know, it's got all of this stuff. It'd be a lovely place for us to also see how our kind of last 20 or, or, or 30 years. So that's about new friendships and about companionships and about if you think of all the bottles of wine you've shared with people over the years, some of whom you may never see again, some of whom will be in your life forever, but some of whom you haven't met yet, which is a lovely thought. You know, some of the, your best friends in the world, hoping, you know, uh, we're still to meet. Yeah. Uh, and in the book, I, I, I think, I hope, that the Thursday Murder Club, they find these friendships that are entirely unexpected to them, would be friendships they wouldn't have made in any other walk of life and if that hadn't been thrown together, but which they value a great deal. And they, the sort of new beginnings of a friendship are incredibly important to them and thrown together at a time where, you know, they are surrounded by grief and death and, and, and physical incapability and all that stuff. But the joy of a friendship remains the joy of a friendship, whether you're seven or 70, I think. And you've already finished writing the sequel to Thursday Murder Club? Yeah, I think such is the, the way the publishing industry works, to be honest. So the first one was finished at the end of last year. And so, yeah, this year I've been working on the, the follow-up, which will be out September next year, I think. And then I'll, then before that's out, I'll be starting on the... Th so you're always one book ahead of where you should be. So yeah, I've just finished the second one. So I'm now talking nonstop about the first one and all the stuff that happens in it. And I'm thinking, hold on a minute, which book did that happen in? So I'm having to be careful I don't give away any spoilers for the uh, for the second book. And it's interesting because I wrote it obviously before the first one came out and before I saw 
the reaction and the sales and before it was quite such a hit. And so it was very sort of, it just belonged to me. And now sort of going back to them and just going, hold on a minute, you know, a lot of people now have an opinion about you. And people have sort of said, oh, I love it when they do that or when they do this. Uh, And so it's going to be interesting to see how that, um, how how I can kind of keep those voices out of my head and just, you know, just let let the four of them or fewer um, uh, do their... uh, (laughs) do their stuff again but it's 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 a complete yeah everyone who survives the first book is back essentially and it's a joy to be back in their company and for those people who haven't read the thursday murder mm-hmm. club or indeed haven't listened to the audio book yeah are they going to be able to see it on their tv screens I think, well, maybe not TV. We sold the film rights, which is quite a counterintuitive move these days because you're supposed to sell everything to Netflix and and what have you. And as somebody who worked in TV, I I just had a hunch that perhaps I should do something different. So we sold the movie rights to Amblin, which is Spielberg's company, which is very, very exciting. And so they're working on the... I mean, I sold it just before the entire movie industry (laughs) collapsed. (laughs) Great Uh, timing. It goes to show why perhaps I'm not in the TV business uh, so much anymore. But yeah, they're working on it at the moment. And the one thing that everyone says when they read the book, everybody, every single person casts the four main characters. They say, oh, that's Judy Dench, that's, um, you know, that's Judy Walters, that's Penelope Wilton, that's, you know, Art Malik. Everybody does it. And I'll be fascinated to see how Hollywood uh, <laughs> casts those four people. They say they'll all be British and yeah, that's absolutely, uh, I'm, I'm sure they're right. But yeah, so I mean, hopefully it'll be on a, on a, on a movie screen, but you know, the, there's, these things often um, fall away. But uh, currently that's the, that's the plan, which is very exciting. Brilliant. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been Richard, my pleasure. Thank you. As always, man. So good to hang out with you and congratulations. Richard Osman, thank you. Thanks, mate. Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. A brand new audiobook narration of one of the most influential novels of the 19th century, beautifully read by Don Warrington. From one of the greatest Russian writers, this is a timeless tale of murder, psychology and morality. He successfully avoided meeting his landlady on the stairs. His garret was right beneath the eaves of a tall, five-storey building and resembled a cupboard more than it did a room. His landlady, a tenant herself, who also provided him with dinner and a maid, occupied separate rooms on the floor below, and every time he went down he had no choice but to pass her kitchen, the door of which was nearly always wide open. The audiobook edition of Crime and Punishment is available to download now.